Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Even if you're not a political junkie, even if you only pay attention occasionally, the one thing you should have learned by now is that campaigns matter. And while this is true at the most local level, it is true in bold relief in our national presidential campaigns. It seems that in the modern political era, presidential cycles each layer on new accessories to the campaign process. In 1960, it was the televised debate. In 1964, it was the insurgent winning primaries and the nomination. In 1968, it was the beginning of the politics of division and the Southern strategy. In 1976, we saw the full flowering of the power of primaries and people over back rooms. In 1980, the consolidation of personality over politics. And in 2008, the first full emergence of all the tools of the modern political campaign. Get out the vote efforts, digital media, more sophisticated polling, all combined with old-school grassroots politics. It didn't hurt that in Barack Obama there was also a great candidate with finely tuned political instincts and a brilliant campaign manager in the person of David Pluff. David Pluff served as the campaign manager for Barack Obama's campaign in 2008, prior to which he was a leading Democratic Party media consultant and played a key role in Senate, gubernatorial, and local elections. It is my pleasure to welcome David Pluff to the program to talk about his new book, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. David, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. As we look at national campaigns, presidential campaigns, is each campaign sui generis? Do we have to look at each one unique to itself? Would you run a campaign, a national campaign today, the same as you ran Barack Obama's campaign in 2008? And, and what's changed? No, I think it's a great question. Uh, you, re- I mean, you need to study history um, because there's lessons in all prior elections. Uh, in this case, you know, it's a re- it's a Republican incumbent, so we need to look at past races where you had incumbents running for re-election. But so much changes every four years. What's electable changes every election? Um, the methods change. You, you went through some of them. Now, social media is the dominant battlefront uh, in any campaign, but particularly a presidential campaign. The battleground states change, right? So back in 2008, uh, you might remember we won Virginia first time since LBJ. um, And, you know, that was a shocking outcome. Now Virginia is heading to safer blue territory. um, And some states, uh, you know, like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, you know, are more competitive. So the battleground state maps changes. So I think it's really, really important. And I think particularly if you're the incumbent, um, you know, between 08 and 12, we tried to really, we, we obviously brought some of the lessons of 08 forward, but we realized it was a completely different election. Uh, and so I think if we're going to be Trump, we have to understand what's changed, um, what is constant, and how we need to, the one thing that doesn't change is the power of people, which is the focus of my book, right? Uh, whether you're talking about Abraham Lincoln back in, 18, uh, in, the, in the 1840s, 50s, and 1860, to now. The power of people, uh, how, they, how they organize has changed. But that is still the most important, I think, factor of any race, whether you're talking about a city council race or a race for president. One of the things that seems to be different is this question about whether or not, even in that aspect of people that you talk about, it's about persuading voters or just getting out the vote. There's been a lot of discussion lately, and you've, I'm sure, seen all of it, about whether or not swing voters even exist, whether today it's just about energizing the base and getting more voters out versus persuading your neighbor. Talk about that. Yeah, and I address this in the book because it's super important people understand before they spend a lot of time, how do we actually win? So first, there's a mathematical exercise, which is to get to um, 
a win number in states like Wisconsin, Florida. There's not enough of just one of those categories, right? We, we have to register, turn out, and persuade uh, to get to a win number. It's just a fact. But let's just look at recent history. So, you know, you remember, you know, the big landslides in American history were histo- historic, unique events, right? 1974, after Watergate, you know, when Roosevelt first came in in 1932. Then we had the 94 election, which is a big deal, too, because it had been 20 years since we had a landslide election. They're happening all the time now. 2018, landslide Democrat. 2014, landslide Republican. 2010, landslide Republican. 2008, landslide Democrat. 2006, landslide Democrat. So most of the elections over the last 14 years have been landslides for one party. And that's not just because everybody turned out in one party and didn't in the other. It's because voters are moving around. So I think this is super dangerous uh, debate uh, for the Democratic Party to suggest that there is no such thing as swing voters. I meet them all the time. Uh, they exist. You're not going to win just with persuasion, but it's a critical component. Um, and you've got to do both really well to win. And then something comes along like Super Tuesday recently where you had Biden win with no organization, essentially, no money, no digital media, no get out the vote effort and and have a compelling win. How do you explain that? Well, first of all, momentum is the most powerful force in politics. It's more important than money. You know, and I would say Biden, it's not like Biden was somebody who had no support and then all of a sudden became the winner. Like he was the national front runner for most of this race. And there was a period of time when he was performing poorly where some of that vote left him. Some of it went undecided. Some went Bloomberg. Some went Mayor Pete. Some went Klobuchar. But he got that back. So it's super important to remember that. So if he was someone who didn't have much support, it, this wouldn't have happened. You know, the momentum was married with folks whose instinct was to be for Biden, but they were concerned about his performance. The other thing I'd say is, you know, I'm in campaigns or in life, in business. Like, if you're doing well, you should always first question is, how could we have done better even if you did well? And if Biden had had more of an organization, more money, he would have done even better on those days. So um, the question for Biden now is, you know, I'm in Ohio. I, I just saw this morning some TV ads um, that he's running. So he's running TV ads. Um, obviously, he can't do events. But what happens this coming Tuesday, I think you'll see both the marriage of Biden's momentum and a little bit more traditional campaign resources. And that should let him do even better than he did, even last uh, Tuesday, uh, when he did pretty well in states like Michigan and Missouri. As we look at those states, and, you know, I'm sitting here in California, which is a good example of this, where people think it doesn't matter because California is going to go blue no matter what. How can those people be energized? Great question. And and this was when I began to write this book, it was in part because I was getting those questions. I live in just south of you in San Francisco now. And um, so here's, first of all, digital media, the Internet has no state lines. So if you get into the fight on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, you know, Snapchat, uh, you're creating content of your own. You know, you're sharing infographics you like. You're fighting back against Trump's lies, which, are, which now are coming hourly. Um, that, you know, will find its way to battleground states, and it will encourage other people to get in the fight, too. Have to do that. I get social media is toxic, but it's the battlefront. If you're not there, you're really not playing. Secondly, you know, you can write postcards. You can make phone calls into battleground states. Lots of people in California have done that. Um, in previous elections, we need more to do it. And then, of course, if you've got the time and, and resources to go to Arizona, um, you need to do that. <laughs> you know, uh, 
it's it's a pretty quick flight, and we need lots of help down there because Arizona has not been a battleground state for a long time. So we have a lot of work to do, a lot of registration to do, a lot of voters who aren't used to being this important. So we need to go help our brothers and sisters in Arizona. So there's so much you can do. Now, we want you to work on local races, too. But a lot of people want to, you know, they want to get involved in the presidential race, understandably. So lots you can do. Um, but, on, you know, I run into people all the time in Northern California who, who, who are anxious about the election, want to know what to do. Uh, beyond money, they obviously can contribute, but we need people's time. And I'll say, well, why don't, why don't you go to Arizona in September and October? And sometimes people say, well, you know, I don't know. You know, we'll see. I'm like, I, like, I really don't want to hear anything other than, yeah, I'm going. I'll go as much as I can because it's super important. What do we make of this whole idea that politics itself has become a kind of sport, that the focus on the horse race has made it a kind of entertainment, and arguably now with all sports canceled, maybe more so? Yeah, well, it's a real problem. So um, I, I still think a lot of voters, you know, they, they're, they're not paying as much attention to that. It's like, who's going to fight for me? Whose health care plan do I like? A presidential election is a really personal choice because we have to live with this person, right? So do I like their character? Can I trust them? In a way, I don't think a lot of voters who made the decision uh, at the end of the last election that tipped it to Trump necessarily liked him. But, you know, they thought we need to shake things up, you know, so it was less about ethics and more about um, Trump was an outsider as they saw it. So I I think that it's a problem. Um, I mean, I write about this in my book. I mean, I think the national networks – uh, in the last presidential campaign in 2016 combined, spent like 32 minutes on policy coverage. That's it. It was all polls, emails, you know, Trump, some of Trump scandals, and some of that deserves coverage. So, but, but so this is where we come in. We don't have to just um, talk about the horse race and the sport of it. So if you care about climate change, if you care about health care, um, you know, if you care about taxes, if you care about small businesses, that's what you should be spending your time and energy in on social media and in your conversation. So, you know, we don't have to follow the crowd here. Uh, we, we all have our own personal megaphone, and we should use it the way we want to use it, and, and it can be effective. But, yeah, it's going to be a problem because I think that that's not going to change um, is, is both polls and also, you know, the media tends to judge everything these candidates say through the prism of the election as opposed to what impact would it have on people. And, you know, we just got to fight through that. We saw an example of this as, as the Democratic primary has unfolded with all this discussion about electability and, and what it did, at least in, in the experience that I saw, is that it made everybody a pundit. It made everybody think they knew how to define electability. Right. What's interesting here is uh, it's a little healthier than just the media driving that is that is kind of what Democratic primary voters instinct was right, right or wrong. It's like, I want to know who can beat Trump and I'm going to make my own decision about that based on my view of what will sell in Wisconsin. So, you know, um, I I think I would like to see um, policy uh, drive a little bit more of that. But that wasn't a manufactured, um, uh, you know, I think terrain for people. I think that's where people naturally went. You mentioned before in, in talking about the candidates that it's a personal choice. Talk about the degree to which it is a personal choice, and is it's really a gut-check kind of vote more than it is about policy. Right. So I'll, I'll give you an example from 2012 when we had a really tough re-election. The economy uh, was recovering but still uh, not strong. And we won that election, you know, 
a lot of things. We had really good youth turnout. We won the Cuban vote in Florida, you know, a lot of things. But at its core, it was voters who were still concerned about the economy saying, you know what, at the end of the day, Obama's going to fight for people like me, right? He's just got it in his gut. So it was less about a policy. It was like when the chips come down, is he going to take care of the wealthy or the worker? And we won that debate. Trump actually won that debate against Hillary, remarkably, I think an epic, epic fraud, but he won it. So there is that, like, who's going to fight for me? Who can handle a crisis? Clearly, Trump is disadvantaging himself in that comparison with his mishandling of the coronavirus. Um, you know, I think there is people who worry that the rest of the world doesn't, um, you know, respect our country or president like they used to. That can drive. Uh, and then just like, who do I kind of want to hang out with? And there's no doubt that, you know, it looks like Biden's going to be our nominee. If that happens, there are a lot of voters. And I know this is not um, exciting to some people, but there are a bunch of voters out there in battleground states who are like, you know what? All things being equal, I'm probably not going to vote for Trump again. Even some people, by the way, who voted, I have a brother like this who voted for Trump last time and is glad he did. But says, like, I think eight years is just too much of this guy. <laughs> right? It was like, I'm not sure if the good things are going to happen uh, if, we, if we extend this experiment. So for them, Biden's, you know, kind of a safe, comfortable, good person, knows his stuff. Like, you know, so, so that's, that's a really important understand is I think sometimes as progressives, and listen, we should talk about policy. Policy is meaningful. We've got to lay out for people how our next president would affect our lives positively. But I think sometimes, um, you know, we tend to lecture and we need to listen more uh, and understand what, what is motivating the voters. So if you're talking to a truly conflicted swing voter, they may say, I just I, I need to know who's got the better health care plan. Or they may say, I just want to know, like, how often is Biden going to tweet? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you just don't know where people are going to take it. So uh, I think good organizing starts with good listening. But, um, you know, any executive job, mayor, governor, uh, and most importantly, president, um, is very much a personal decision for people. Because this person is going to be on your phones, on your tablet, on your TV, on your radio, um, you know, for those four years. And you want to make sure that that's so. And so you say, well, how could people pick Trump? Well, let's not remember, forget he only got 46.1% of the vote and barely won battleground states. Uh, won Wisconsin with 47-1. So a lot of people didn't choose Trump. But I think for them it was he's the outsider. He's going to shake it up. Uh, We've got to give somebody like him a chance. So it was less like I want Trump to be on my phone every day. Um, and I think that's a mistake he's made. I mean, he dominates our public consciousness and our thinking in a way that I think will ultimately hurt him in the election. The other side of that is the degree, or really the parallel to that, is the degree to which people are exhausted and burnt out from all of this. I think Michael Bennett said, you know, during during when he was still in the campaign, that he was going to just disappear for weeks at a time and people wouldn't have to hear about the president. I mean, he said it jokingly, but there is a sense out there of people being exhausted. Yeah, and a desire to get back to normalcy. Um, so some of that's, you know, not tweeting 50 times a day. Some of that's not just attacking everybody and blaming other people. Some of it's not um, kind of creating crisis. So, you know, Trump's done plenty of that, whether it's Charlottesville, um, the travel ban, um, you know, how he's responding to this, I think, is added to people's anxiety. So I don't know if it's disappearing for weeks, but the spirit of that, I think, is important, which is um, we're going to kind of get back to normal order and Washington's going to be less present in your life day to day. I, I think that's smart. Um, and, you know, if I were the Biden campaign, if he's our nominee, I would definitely embrace that um, attitude. One of the things that does seem different today, and it relates to social media, but it has a larger framework as well, is the degree of disinformation that, that Trump has created 
and what the price of that is in the political process. Well, it's a huge problem. And, and obviously, you know, there was a story, I think, on CNN.com yesterday about the Russians um, contracting with a bunch of people down in Ghana to create content here in America to sow racial division. So we're going to see that from the Russians and others. Um, they want a president like Trump in office, right? It's good for them when America is weak and led by um, somebody who's clearly not up to the job. But Trump himself, let's just look at the last 72 hours. So he keeps pushing this attack that uh, this is all Obama's fault, <laughs> uh, which has you know, been debunked every which way to Sunday. So what I would say is if your Uncle Jared or Aunt Ivanka posts on Facebook or Instagram uh, this accusation from Trump, you as a citizen need to say it's just not true and find a good piece of content that says it's not true. Now, if that's a hardcore Trump supporter, your aunt and uncle, they're not going to change their mind. But somebody else who may actually say, I'm not sure what to believe, may see it and say, okay, now I know it's true. And everyone else will see you fighting back, and we have to fight back. So the other thing Trump did three nights ago was he tweeted out, um, if, the Ameri- if the Democrats win the presidency, they're going to get rid of all cars, and you won't be allowed to have more than one car as a family. Just a flat-out lie. Right. Okay, so I think sometimes we think about this information as stuff the Russians are going to do or shadowy political groups are going to do. He's doing this from the White House, from the presidential podium, and his people will believe it. So I know that can frustrate all of us, but like I wouldn't worry about his hardcore base. Like let's work on them in in the next decade, <laughs> but they're going to stick with Trump. But for people who are truly gettable in this election, it's super important because Trump. Here's I mean, listen, Trump's last event of the campaign, I'm sure, will be listen if Joe Biden wins. You won't be able to drive your car or truck. You won't be able to eat steak or hamburger. Uh, you're not going to be able to fly on a plane. Uh, he doesn't believe in borders. Um, he's going to let all rapists and criminals out of, criminals out of jail. Um, and none of that's true. None of it's true. But that's what he's going to say. So the disinformation, uh, we saw this with Boris Johnson in the last U.K. election. It's gravitated from the shadowy corners of the Internet to the mouths of leaders. Um, and, you know, Trump's always had that, um, you know, inclination, but he's, as you can see, he's intensifying it. He's just going to lie, 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 you know, and, you know, now he's going to lie about somebody else. So that, that's what he's going to do. And so, again, we hope our nominee and their campaign and the media does their job. But my message in the book is you can't um, rely on that. If you see something, say something. Uh, you got to get in the fight, as frustrating as it can be. But the stakes are so high that we're only talking about, you know, bad, you know, seven and a half months until the election. So for seven and a half months, people can do things um, that are hard, do things that take a lot of time because, you know, we've been called. This is a moment where everybody wants to defeat Trump, does not want to look back if Trump wins and say, I know there's things I could have done. Uh, you do not want that feeling because if Trump wins on the night of November 3rd, uh, where it's going to feel about 50 times worse than it did on 2016. What is the nexus between the, what we've been talking about and local politics? Because there's a lot of arguments that have been made lately and, and a couple of books that have been written about it that, that people need to engage more in local politics. It's a place where they can have a more profound impact. It affects their lives in, in a more personal way. Talk about dealing with that at the same time we want people to get engaged in this national debate well it's great so listen if if somebody in napa county or you know uh in nevada um tells me listen i, I just i'm i you know I, i'm gonna do i'm gonna spend a lot of time on my local race i wouldn't tell them not to do that that's important right i really wrote this book for people whose desire is 
to figure out what they can do directly in the presidential. But first of all, the stronger local candidates do, that can help, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the presidential level and vice versa. So, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that's so exciting coming out of Trump's election, we saw a lot of this in 2018. You know, we saw so many of those great congressional victories in California. We're just great candidates. We're just normal people. I mean, the great thing is we're starting to see more people say, maybe it's not going to be my career, but, you know, city council, state legislator, uh, Congress, I'm going to run. And and that gets us all excited because we want to help people who are like us and, and who who um, are exciting and fresh and new. So um, I, I think getting involved locally, running yourself is super important. Um, obviously, the better if Joe Biden's our nominee, the better Joe Biden does at the top of the ticket, the more local races we win. But it does work both ways. You know, if you have a, a local race with a lot of energy, that's a reason for a lot of people to get involved. You know, that can also strengthen the presidential campaign. Talk a little bit about process. I mean, it really goes two ways. One is the whole issue of voter suppression, and that that's certainly one part of this to be dealt with. But the other, which we've seen a little bit in, in the primaries, is incompetence in many cases, in inadequacy in really conducting elections in this country today. Well, we've had some problems with caucuses, in part because the DNC had new requirements for the sets of data that needed to be produced, almost like it was a primary. So if you're going to do caucuses, just do a caucus. Don't try and turn them into a primary. And caucuses are not run by state election officials. They're run by parties. So I do think you're going to see, I would be surprised if if we have caucuses anymore uh, the next time we have uh, this process. Um, so more primaries. But, you know, yes, you, you know, we saw on Super Tuesday long lines in Texas, which is by design, you know, Republicans, for the most part, want to make it harder for people to register and vote. But we also saw long lines in parts of California, and that's inexcusable. So I do think anywhere Democrats control, um, you know, the machinery of government, there's a list of things. You know, California has done many of them. Uh, as much early vote as possible, both by mail and in person, uh, automatic voter registration, making it easier for 17-year-olds to sign up and become automatically registered, any number of things, same-day voter registration. Um, so that's all good, but then you have to follow through to great execution on Election Day. So if, if, you, if you do all that and then people are waiting in line for three hours, um, it's inexcusable. And, you know, I've, I've worked in government at, at, at different levels, and there's lots of public policy debates that are super hard and thorny um, and complex. This is not one. It's simple math. How many people do you expect to be voting um, and at what times during the day? And then make sure you have the proper amount of machines um, and workers on hand. And if you've got to add more polling locations, do that. Like, it drives me crazy when, you know, we've got states run by Democrats where you see those kind of lines. Uh, you know, it's like the hardest thing we do, you know, you can press a button and basically get anything you want in a matter of seconds or minutes these days, uh, on your phone. But the thing that seems to take the longest, uh, is voting, um, which again, in some Republican states, that's by design, but where we own the process, you know, from the, from registration to actual voting, let's make it as painless and easy as possible. Which really goes to the the heart of one of the important points that you make in the book is that. There's 65 million votes that roughly 65 million that can be counted on as as anti-Trump votes or pro-Democratic votes. But that number needs to increase to 70 to 75 million, which means we're going to have with luck five to 10 million more voters out there. Yeah. The reason I say that is, you know, I think Trump is going to grow his his turnout. Um, You know, he's obviously not grown his support base through uh, persuasion, meaning people who voted against him last time. 
he's kind of give them the middle finger for the most part uh, and show no interest in gaining their support. But there are a lot of people, particularly in battleground states, um, that look a lot like Trump's core MAGA base that aren't registered or haven't participated. So, um, you know, I was just in Wisconsin, um, you know, two days ago. Trump, you know, won that state actually with a couple thousand votes less than Romney got. Um, but, you know, it was around 1.4 million votes. You know, I assume he's going to put up 1.6 or 1.65. Um, you know, in Florida, he could go north of 5 million votes. So we've got to raise our water line, too. Um, and, you know, we do that through a mixture, a mixture of persuading people, but also registration and turnout. So, um, you know, I think the most important thing our presidential candidate will do from a campaign standpoint, um, they've got to target the right states, obviously. But when they think about how many, and you know, a campaign is boiled down to this, how many votes do you think you need to do to win, right? Um, and then, you know, the dollars you spend, the time you spend, where you allocate your human resources, all flows from that, right? So, but if you think Trump is going to get 10 votes somewhere, you better assume he's going to get 12. Like, I, we cannot be surprised. We've got a plan for what's Trump's, like, ideal scenario uh, in terms of the number of votes he gets and, and plan a campaign, uh, you know, that can match him and exceed him. David Pluff, the book is A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me, and everybody stay safe out there. Thank you.